0: We are in a sermon series called Overwhelmed, because we are overwhelmed. So many people are overwhelmed about many things. Uh, we've talked about over the past, what, six or seven weeks, we've talked about anxiety, overwhelmed with worry, overwhelmed with fear, overwhelmed with loneliness, um, overwhelmed with, what was the other one? Um, yeah, I think that was it. Um, overwhelmed by a lot of things, right? We're just overwhelmed. Um, I just find that the more and more people that I talk to, they're just like at, at some level by some aspect of life just feeling, feeling overwhelmed. Today we're going to talk about being overwhelmed by shame. And uh, I was thinking about this before we get into it. <clears throat> shame is kind of a, a heavy deal. But I, I was thinking, of, I, I think I might have told you maybe this story, I don't know, six, seven years ago. But I, one, one of my most favorite times growing up as a kid in the 80s, Favorite time of year was when the fair, the carnival, came to town, and um, you guys, I, I absolutely love the smells of, you know, the the caramel corn and the, the the cotton candy, the fried dough, like the rusty carnival games, like all of all of it, all of it. I love it all. Like back in my day, it was called the Colonial Days. Per- you know, Colonial Days uh, Fair back in Painted Post, New York. And I still, we, we, we actually take the whole staff to the Freiburg Fair every year just because I love the fair. Um, and I'm like, I want you all to come. And so we just eat junk all day long. Um, you know what I'm talking about, though. Like, if you grew up as a kid, like, with the fair, it was like a magical time of year. They all came in. You made sure that your tetanus shots were updated. And then you go to the fair. Like, it was it's just an experience. Um, and it's part fear, part like wow, this is amazing. And it, it just it came to your to your town. One of the staples of, of the fair, seemed like it was every carnival fair, was the tilt-a-whirl. And uh, there it is, right there. That's kind of at least part of it. It's um, if you've never been on a tilt-a-whirl, it's kind of like a merry-go-round gone horribly wrong. It's uh. Created most likely by some sadist who was wanting to inflict harm on people, but didn't want to be blamed for it. Um, and as a young boy, I would watch, like salivating over the tilt world, like people that would just be tall enough that New York state law allowed to go on this death trap. And so I remember when I finally was tall enough, to go on the Tilt-A-Whirl, it was, it was an amazing day in my life. I had just consumed a candy apple like it was my occupation. And um, I had that red, you know, if you eat those, you get red stickiness everywhere. Like everywhere. I won't eat them now because I'm too type A. But like back then, I mean, you just like, yeah, you just wipe it all over. Your, you, you just head to toe, red stickiness all over you. And so um, I waited in line, was tall enough, gave the man my sticky ticket and then uh, began my journey, nay, my quest, to find the color of car that I was going to be riding in. Because that was a big deal to a young kid, especially the first time you're on the Tilt to Whirl. and so we, we run around really, really fast. You know, I've been scoping it out, but like, you know, the yellow one was taken. So we run around to get the blue and you get in the car, you pull down the flimsy metal bar that um, supposedly saves your life. And then you listen to a teenager dispense to you verbally the most important safety instructions. And it usually sounds like this. Welcome to what you the world. We'll just keep the fans of eating all the time. So, I have high blood pressure, pregnant, and maybe I'm pregnant. Uh, you know, not on a while. just, not know. And you're like. And then it's pretty much, this is what he says. Pretty much, he's saying, warning, you're about to ride the tilt a whirl. Okay? So you get on the tilt the world, starts up, starts spinning, and it goes faster, and it goes faster, and it goes faster. And then all of a sudden, your carriage starts, like, spinning erratically. Like, it's this added bonus. It's why it's, like, the merry-go-round gone horribly wrong. And so it starts spinning around, it gets faster. And I'm, like, I'm getting, like, thrown around in this thing like a rag doll. It's just, like, me and my friend. And I'm, like, I know I was tall enough, but, like, me, like, I was this tall, but, like, 35 pounds. And so, like, I'm I'm like slamming around. I'm like breaking my pelvis. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's a hot mess. And so I, I, I'm sure I, w- I was like, I'm going to die today. I'm going to die and I got so much left to do. I hadn't even beat Mario Super Mario Brothers 3 yet. And I'm like, I got, I got stuff to live for, right? And this isn't how I thought it was going to go, but it's terrifying. And so you're, you're going around this thing and, 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 and as you watch other people do it, you're like, that, that ride was so short. But when you're on the Tilt-A-Whirl, <laughs> You're like, when is this ride from hell going to stop? And so finally, the tilt-a-whirl stopped spinning, but my stomach never did. And so I'm like, get me out of this thing. And so I pull up the metal bar. I stumble down the exit ramp. I hang a left, and I empty the contents of my stomach into the grass. And let me just say, I wasn't the first person there. Layers. I mean, it was just like, this is the place. This is where, this is where everyone goes after the tilt-a-whirl. They just throw sawdust on it. Yeah, you know, just keep moving on. Just keep moving on. Right? Hate to have that job. Right? <clears throat> and so, I want to talk today about a tilt-a-whirl that um, so many of us have bought season and tickets for, and it's the tilt-a-whirl of shame. And uh, the title I message today is shame, shame. I know your name. Many of us know that. Maybe you grew up. We used to say that all the time. I I haven't heard it often lately, but we used to be, shame, shame. I know your name. I don't know what this means. I actually spent 10 minutes on Google. Like, what is this? (laughs) Nothing, nothing. A bunch of just nincompoops with ideas, right? Just like, I don't know. I think it might be this. Apparently in Britain, they do this. I have no idea why still, but we did this. It was like, shame, shame. I know your name, and I know somebody's going to come over to the connect corner after service and inform me, but all right. So anyway, we, we shame, shame, I know your name. And so, be, and, I'm, and I'm talking about shame because I think that shame is one of the things that we rarely recognize as shame, and yet we live out of the, the symptoms of it so often in our life. And I say we rarely recognize it because it usually masks itself as something other than shame. And so we, uh, we find ourselves doing things like avoiding people or relationships when we're overwhelmed with shame. We find ourselves maybe getting overly defensive of ourselves when we're overwhelmed with shame. We, we sometimes find ourselves getting like overly critical of other people when we're overwhelmed with shame. And we often deem with, deal with, with shame through blame. So we don't want the finger pointed at ourselves because it feels like it always is, so we point it out at other people um, to take the blame off of, off of ourselves. And oftentimes, we will, will take shame and guilt and we conflate the two as though they're the same thing, but, but the reality is that they're not. They're, they're, actually, they're actually different. Let me, let me explain it to you. So essentially, like we're all guilty like you're guilty of sin. If this is newsflash to you, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you are. Like you're guilty of missing the mark. You're guilty of hurting other people. You, if you've lived or sucked oxygen on planet Earth for five minutes, you're guilty <laughs> of something, right? Like you've you've done some wrong. You're guilty of that. But shame is different. Shame is like guilt's evil twin. Guilt deals with an with an incident, with an action, with a sin. But but shame deals with an identity. It kind of looks like this like like guilt will say uh, I I did bad. But shame says no 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 you are bad. Guilt says um you you made a mistake. But shame says you are a mistake. Guilt's isolated to, you know, like an individual act, but but shame shame's different. Shame is is contagious and shame essentially well, it's deciding, well, guilt is like going on the tilt-a-whirl. Shame is like buying season tickets for it and deciding, I think I like this. And, and shame's, shame's interesting because well, we'll, we'll say things, and maybe we don't say it to other people, maybe we do, but usually we say it to our dog when it, when it wets or, or defecates on the carpet, we say, shame on you, right? Because shame can be put on other people. Shame's kind of a funny thing. It's not even something necessarily that we put on ourselves. Sometimes shame can be put on, on you. And many of us know, maybe in our families, the way that we were raised, the way that we were parented, we, we understand all too well what it's like to have shame put on us. And maybe we were kind of parented out of kind of a, a shame culture to get us to maybe do things. Shame was placed on us. Shame on you. Not only is it put on us, we carry it. Many of us will carry shame with us long after the guilt of sin has been forgiven. We continue to carry the, the shame of it. it. It's a little like the ghost of the, of the guilt of what we did that continues to haunt us long after that thing is gone. So we'll carry that thing with us. And sometimes, sometimes we'll carry shame of things that we actually played no part in, right? Right? We, we'll, we'll have things that we actually had had nothing to do in our lives, maybe some part of our family or just because we're associated with a friend or a group or people or whatever shame has been placed on us that and we carry it even though we've done nothing to, to own it and sometimes we'll wield shame we'll wield it as a weapon. we can sometimes knowingly or unknowingly use shame to motivate or let's just say it, manipulate people to do what we want them to do, right? If you're in a relationship, well, if you loved me, then you do this. Well, I was kind of hoping that you would have, but you didn't. Well, if you really cared, then you would. Like, you, and it, sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes we do it unknowingly. Sometimes we do it knowingly that we know exactly kind of we're wanting to get people to do what we want them to do. And so we know how shame works in our own life, and we turn it around and wield it on others to get them to do something that we want them to do. So shame is also like a soundtrack in the background of our life. It, it usually sounds something like this. I'm not enough. It usually sounds like I'm only as good as my next success. I I I it's never going to get never going to change. It is what it is no matter what I do, I will never measure up. It's the soundtrack of shame. And I want to speak this prophetically over you before we even get into the word of God today. I just believe that God wants to change your soundtrack. He wants to change your soundtrack. What does that look like? It looks like moving from shame, shame, I know your name to shame, shame, I'm not playing your game. I am I'm done. I'm done being ruled by, by the pain and the stain of my shame of all the things that have happened in my life. I'm, I'm tired of, of putting on that yoke of slavery that, that Christ has already freed me from. I'm, I'm not playing the game anymore. And I want to show you, we're gonna go through a few scriptures this morning, but I wanna show you how Satan has used shame from the very, very beginning. This is not a new thing. If you're in Bible college, you kind of learn right off the bat that there's this thing called the law of first mention, which means that if you're kind of studying something, then you should go back to the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible, and it's usually a great way for you to have a launching pad of a definition of what it's talking about. So I want to I point out to you that, that shame has been a part of Satan's guile from the very, very beginning. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God creates man and women. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, let me read it for you. It says this. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You may remember it. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So in the beginning, way back in the beginning, way back in the beginning, there was no shame. So what, what happened? What changed? Well, you know that they ate from the, the, the garden, the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, that yes, but... It all started actually when they decided to believe a lie. And the serpent comes up to them and asks them this question, did God really say that? I mean, did he really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Essentially asking this question, are you sure that God really has your best interest at heart? I think because Satan knew that a lie that is believed can be just as powerful as the truth. Let me say that again for you, because I think that this is a key for unlocking some, sh- some freedom from shame in your life, is that a lie that is believed can be just as powerful as the truth in your life. And so Satan knew that. He knew that if he could twist the Word of God, twist them to maybe believe the lie that maybe God doesn't have their best interests at heart, then what do they do? They, they sin. And I want you to see the first thing that they do after they sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It's crazy. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened as soon as they eat, and they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see that? Coverings. So they feel shame for the first time all of a sudden. Shame enters into the human experience and shame manifests itself by hiding from other people. Isn't it interesting that as shame, the first way that it manifests is that you, you begin to realize like, I am a, I'm vulnerable here and I need space and to keep other people at bay. And so all of a sudden shame manifests itself through covering, through hiding from other people. And not just hiding from other people, also hiding from God. The very next verse, verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So shame causes you to hide from others and to hide from God. So if you're like, well, I, I don't necessarily know if Pastor Justin, like this is kind of maybe a message for the person next to me, but maybe it's probably not me. If you find yourself trying to isolate and hide from other people or, or hide from God or feel like there is like this, this, this barrier, chances are is that shame plays a role in that to some level. So we see that in the story of Adam and Eve. And then we can fast forward. You can look through a whole, I mean, you could probably yell some things out of just like different stories of where shame has played a role. The one big one is this, 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's the story of David and Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba essentially goes like this. David, he's King David, he's up on, on top of his, uh, his palace roof and he's, he looks down and he sees a woman bathing and he asks about her. He's like, who's, who's she? And she finds out that She's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who is one of his fighting men, one of his soldiers who's out fighting the war that David should be at. So David sends for her. They sleep together. She ends up pregnant. He tries to cover it up though. He's like, oh no, I- I'm in trouble. We got we to gotta, we gotta cover this thing up. We have to hide this and so he makes a decision let's get Uriah the Hittite back off the field let's get him back here and hopefully he'll go home and be with his wife and then nobody will know any different right it was just awesome that's great only Uriah is too much of a man of integrity and character he comes back off the field he says why don't you go spend the night at your own house relax all that kind of stuff and Uriah says no I'm not going to do that while my brothers in arms are risking their life tonight and he ends up sleeping on the steps he doesn't go in. So this foils David's plan of trying to hide and cover up his sin. And so he decides, okay, you know what? I'm fine. If you're going to do this? Then fine. He sends Uriah back into the field with a note to give to the commander. The, the commander opens up the note, and it literally says, I want you to send Uriah to the front lines. And when he gets to the front lines, I want everyone to retreat. And so they do that, and Uriah is killed in battle. And King David thinks that he got away with it. He's like, Whew. Man, dodged a bullet there. He's like, I, I, I know nobody. Nobody knows until the prophet Nathan hears from God, and confronts him. And David finally confesses to his sin, repents of his sin, and worships God. And he writes this psalm. David wrote a bunch of the psalms. Psalm thirty-two It's written by King David, and it ties right into his experience of of shame, of his sin that he knows he knew all too well, like many of us do. And this is what it starts out, Psalm 32. Let me read it for you, verse one. He says, "'Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, "'whose sin is put out of sight. "'Yes, what joy for those whose record "'the Lord has cleared of guilt, "'whose lives are lived in complete honesty.'" It, like, this must have been written after this guy comes to the, this place of, like, I've come clean from all the things that I've been hiding. Notice that David deals with his shame, not by hiding it anymore, not by trying to cover it up. He deals with his shame by first acknowledging his sin, his disobedience. And he doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try to dismiss it. He doesn't say, I'm not a sinner. I'm a mistaker. I just make mistakes. No, he's like, I did it on purpose. I tried to get away with it. I've been disobedient. I've sinned. He doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't say, well, it's just a lapse in judgment. I mean, I'm only human. Like, no, he just admits it. This is what I've done, and I'm guilty. And this, this, this church, this is so, so, so significant. And I speak this over us. Because our current culture, and I'm not even talking about the culture outside of the four walls of the church, I'm talking about the current culture inside the four walls of the church, tries to convince us that we should deal with our shame of sin by normalizing it. Well, if we just don't name it sin, then we don't have to feel the shame of it. We just don't call it sin. Have you noticed that like nothing is sin anymore? Like, literally, there's nothing that's sin. I mean, there's a lot of talk about sin in the Bible, but, like, nothing's really sin. I mean, it's kind of a mistake. It's a lapse of judgment. It's just a misunderstanding. Or it's a difference of opinion. But, like, when we think, like, maybe if I just don't name it sin, then I'll stop feeling the shame of sin. But what we find is that God has defined sin long before we thought we were smarter than him. Like, like he wrote it before you were even a thought. <laughs> he, he wrote it. And, and, and shame has this insidious way of working even when we won't admit it. It works its way out. Think about it. Adam and Eve, very first humans, Right? They had tried to convince themselves that it was okay to sin. Like, well, the, the, the sin wasn't really sin. I mean, did God really say? Maybe he's having a bad day. I mean, was it that tree or was it the other tree? Who knows? You know, maybe we shouldn't ask any questions. You know, like, but shame has its way of working its way and working its plan, regardless of your opinion. Regardless of how they convinced themselves that eating from that tree was actually maybe a good idea. He thought. And as we look at David, like King David, if he could just hide the evidence, he thought like, then no, nobody's going to find out, then I won't feel shame. If I could just, if I could hide this thing, if I could just, Uriah would just go home and he would do it, then, then, then I wouldn't feel the shame of my actions. He thought that the worst thing that could happen was for somebody to find out about what he had done. That's what he thought. But church, that's not the worst thing that could happen like the worst thing that could happen is for you to keep your secret and keep it your entire life and die a respectable fraud and never encounter the joy and the freedom that Jesus Christ bought for you, that he paid for. That's the worst thing that could happen. And David describes his shame all too well, like very explicitly in the next verse. Verse 3, he says this, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. It sounds like a guy with a man cold. And day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. I mean, he is describing like I am just miserable. And it all starts out with, when I refuse to confess my sin. Isn't that just how shame works? You can't do it. You got to hide from it. You got to cover it up. And that way you'll be better. You won't feel the sting of shame if you just do that. And and I think David describes it all too well. When I I was refusing to confess my sin, when I was trying to hide it, when I was trying to cover for it, when I didn't want to talk about it, when I wouldn't let anybody in, when I was hiding from other people, when I was hiding from God, I was miserable. The very thing that I thought was going to protect me was the thing that made me miserable. Because the thing about shame is that it will perpetuate itself. It literally just kind of keeps you doing shameful things in order to keep you from feeling shame. David tries to deal with his shame of his sin by committing murder. Like, think about that train of thought. Like, oh, man, I've I got to cover up this infidelity in, in my relationship and this adultery. I think I should kill the man. What? Like, how in the world do you get to the point of thinking, like, this shameful act is going to negate this shameful act? He tries to commit murder in order to not feel shame? But see, the thing about shame is this. It doesn't care if anybody else knows. As long as you do. As long as you know. You'll continue to work it out. Continue to live it out of you. And you'll continue to buy ticket after ticket after ticket. Another ride on the Tilt-A-World, please. Thank you. I'll have another And we go on the tilt-a-whirl shame, hating it, hating every second of it, but not knowing how to get off it. And the thing about the tilt-a-whirl shame is this. Just like the real tilt-a-whirl, there are different colored cars. And everybody has a favorite. You like the pink. I wouldn't be cut dead in the pink, okay? (laughs) No way. I'd be like, next. I'll wait for the next round. That's pink is only left. Because I'm a man, right? I'm not riding no pink cars. Like, here's the reality. Every single one of us will hop into a different car on the tilt-a-whirl because that's our favorite. That's our go-to. That's our expression of shame. And that's kind of how shame works. Sometimes for, for many people, there's the car of isolation. This is what we've been talking about. Like, you, you just kind of withdraw from relationships because it's just better. And so maybe you become passive-aggressive or you self-sabotage relationships because you'd rather maybe hurt them or keep them away before they hurt you. And so because of the shame that you're dealing with, isolation is your go-to car every day. For some of you, it's, the, it's maybe the car of manipulation, where you use shame to kind of pressure others to do what you'd like them to do. And so we just know shame all oh too well in our own life, and we leverage it to get what we want in other people's lives. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the car of self-righteousness. This is a weird one. The weird one about self-righteousness is that it doesn't look like shame at all, because we become critical of other people, especially people that are sinning the way that we wish we would. Those are the people we're really critical about. Just so you know, um, man, when when people are being lazy and you wish you could be, whoo, 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 you hate some lazy people, right? Like. I'm just telling you, we become all of a sudden very judgmental, very self-righteous. When we're overwhelmed with shame, we can ride in that car and get in it just like a glove. Sometimes it's the car of anger, right? We've got got our own issues with, with shame in our own life, and so we don't know how to handle it. So we lash out at other people so that they can hurt the way that we hurt. And, and please, please, when we hear anger, we're like, well, I've never hurt somebody. I've never hit somebody. I don't get in fights. I don't wrestle, right? Like, but here's the thing. The socially acceptable way of getting in the car of anger is sarcasm. <laughs> it's just, you just walk away. I didn't hurt anybody. Just a joke. Just kidding. Chill out. And so we get into these cars. So for some of us, it's the car of perfectionism. It's this idea, because we're never good enough, that we're only as good as our next success. And so we work so stinking hard to prove to ourselves and to convince others that we're worth it. And we don't see it as shame. We just see it as, I'm just an orderly person. I like to get things done. And behind it, we have this low-lying grade of just shame that's kind of, well, that Jesus paid for And so we pick a car and we ride it. And the question that I want us to wrestle with today for the remainder of our time is how do we stop buying tickets for the tilt-a-whirl of shame that nobody wants to be on? How do we stop buying tickets? I want you to watch what David did. In verse 5, we're walking down through Psalm 32, verse 5. He says, finally, which how many of you know, sometimes God just breaks you down to the point where it's finally. He says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you. And stop trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me! Exclamation point. All my sin is gone. I want you to see this: that David repented of his sin. He confessed his sin. He stopped trying to hide his guilt, and it was his repentance that allowed God's forgiveness in his life. And the reality is, and this is the, this is the kind of backwards way of us looking at things: is that The thing that we think of like is the most vulnerable thing that we could do, which would be to confess our faults and to confess our sin to God, is the actual, possibly the limiter to God's forgiveness in our life. It is actually causing more distance when we choose to just say, finally, I confess my sins to him. Sins that he already knows about so that he can come in and forgive you of your sin and to remove the stain of shame in your life. We've said before that God, can, God can't heal who you pretend to be. He can only heal who you truly are. And so when we try to pretend something, and well, God's saying, I just need you to be real. And well, It is that confession. Honestly, it's our vulnerability with God, our willingness to be vulnerable with God that allows us to experience his forgiveness. And see, that the problem with it is this, is that When it comes to guilt of our sin, this is the thing that you're arguing with me about silently, is this, you know when you're guilty of sin that you owe someone something. It becomes this debt-debtor relationship, which is why we say things like, well, I owe her an apology. We say things like, well, you know, I just, I don't know how to repay him. I, I don't know how to pay them back. So there's good reason that we don't want to face our guilt because it leaves us feeling like we're condemned, leaves us feeling like we're, we're, we're in debt to somebody and nobody likes feeling, feeling like we're in debt to anybody. And what we know, the difficulty of this stuff is this. You can't undo what's been done. So many things. You can't unsay what you've said. You can't put the, the toothpaste back in the toothpaste holder, you, you, once it's squeezed out, it's out there. You can't be un, unfaithful in your marriage, right? Like you can't just all of a sudden go back to the way it was. And this is the reason why so many of us, we don't, we don't want to actually confess our guilt. We just try to think, well, I just got to move on. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to try to move on. But the problem is, is that shame has a tendency to follow us like a shadow no matter how fast we try to outrun it. So how do we face our guilt and, and yet not let it define us? I'm going to read a scripture to you. And um, I'm going to read something from a man that, that probably had more regret than anybody in this room combined. And when I read this to you, I, I don't want you to hear me reading the Bible. Although it is. I, I'm reading the words of a man who carried more guilt than, than we can even imagine. So what I'm about to read, it's not just a verse from, from, a, from a holy book, these are, are words of a man whose past and life experience left him so broken and, and so guilty, a man who had every reason to buy season tickets to the Tilted World. The guy who wrote these words came onto the scene as Saul of Tarsus. You may have heard of him before. Um, Saul of Tarsus kind of began, came onto the scene in the book of Acts, um, arresting, torturing, imprisoning, and even involved in executing innocent men and women in the name of God. And later on in his life, he would find himself converted to the very religion of the people that he imprisoned. Actually, he would find himself in the very faith community, a leader in the very same faith community of children whose parents he had tortured. You ever thought about that? aunts and uncles and grandparents that he had torn from families and sent them to prison, maybe even death. These are the words of a man who carries that amount of guilt, and he's faced with it every day through the eyes of the people that he's serving. And what's amazing about Paul, tall of Tarsus, and that he wasn't defined by his guilt. He didn't carry his shame. Now, it doesn't mean that he, de- he, he denied his guilt. In fact, he documented it for us. We, we don't know about all the horrible things that Paul did because everybody whispered it and told his story for him. He wrote it down for us and told his story over and over and over again. Like, he literally embarrassed his sin before his sin could embarrass him. He's like, gotcha, ha, ha just like that. I got right at it. So, a letter that he wrote to believers in Rome, here's what he wrote to them, and here's what he wrote for you. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can this be? How could he write that? In other words, he's saying like when you're in Christ, there is this space where your past, your sins are neither forgotten nor shamed. A space where you can face your guilt and you don't have to pretend that it didn't happen. You don't have to cover it up. A space where you can face your guilt and yet not feel the shame of condemnation from it. How could Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul, with the guilt of everything that he had done, write such words? When he had every reason in the world to buy season tickets to the Tilt-A-Whirl, get on his car, and just ride her all day long. What did he know? What did he know that we forget? I think he knew. Man, much better than me. The freedom the freedom that is found only in Christ. I think he he knew, and he could never forget every day, freedom from shame. He knew that, that Jesus Christ did not simply come to forgive his sins, but he experienced firsthand Christ's forgiveness, remove the stain of shame in his life. He knew it. How do we know he knew it? Look what he wrote next. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by, my, by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. He says, what, what the law was powerless to do, what, what I couldn't make up for, what I couldn't cover, what I couldn't ever satiate. God did. God did it by sending his own son. He's like, Jesus didn't just come as a hippie with long hair to teach you nice things about how you should be a nice person. He came as a sin offering to save you, not just forgive you from your sin, but to free you from the stain of shame. Amen. Your guilt and your shame, which means that when you are in Christ, There is now no condemnation. That means that when God sees you, he doesn't see that. He doesn't see that. He sees his son, and he wants you to see yourself the same way that he sees you, and he wants you to see other people the same way that he sees them. And when you condemn yourself through self-condemnation and shame, God looks at you and he says, don't talk about my son that way. Don't you ever talk about my son that way. I know who you're talking about, but you better not ever say that again. God wants to change your soundtrack, and he wants to set you free. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And then it's so important what he says next. He says, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He says, you've been set free. It is for freedom that you have been set free. So walk in your freedom and you better not go back and allow the the yoke of slavery, of shame, of the sin that God already paid for. He already put the down payment on it. Why in the world would you pick that thing up to carry it again? He says, don't go back to that yoke of slavery. You have been set free. Amen? I I I think Tom said it great when he's like, God already paid for it. So why are you trying to? Let me give you a little caveat here because I know that. Let me explain to you what freedom in Christ is not. Freedom in Christ is not I hurt you and then I go back home and I ask God for, to forgive me and now it's all it's all Okay. God forgave me, you're supposed to, unless you're not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, I guess that's your problem, take it up with Jesus. That's not Christianity. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's some selfish abomination of the freedom in Christ, I'll tell you that much, putting it kindly. That is not Christianity. This is what Christianity is like. Christianity is like this, I hurt you, and I'm guilty of that, and I'm sorry, and I ask God to forgive me, and he gives me what I don't deserve, so that I can come back and give you what you do deserve. Folks, that's Christianity. Yeah, it is huge. When you come to the place of realizing that, like, shame has no hold on you. Shame is not the boss of you anymore. You don't have to operate out of it. You don't have to hide from people. You don't have to hide from God. You just confess your sin. You try to make it right to the best of your ability. And you you walk in the freedom that Christ has bought for you. It's this revelation that shame no longer has a hold on you, which means that you are free. You are free to love. Do you know that? You're free to live. You're free to say I'm sorry. You're free to be vulnerable. You're free to make restitution. You don't have to hold back restitution. You, you're free. You are free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And it's this question that I want to leave you with today. Is this like, what if vulnerability was the mark of... Maturity in the Christian life. What if what if humility is like a domino that knocks down the walls of pride and anger in other people's lives that only love can break? And that's the hard stuff. Won't you stand with me? So When you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Which means that your past simply reminds you of how much you're loved by God. And so the question that I'd love to ask you today is like, are you ready to stop buying tickets on the Tilt-A-Whirl? Because nobody nobody gets off the Tilt-A-Whirl feeling like they're living their best life now. I look at you just you can stand there, you go to the carnival, you just watch. You, people just be like, why I do that? I got two more tickets, I better use them, right? We just we get back on this thing and then you wait in line. There's always a line at the tilt a whirl You ever notice that? Why is there a line at that ride? There's so there's always a line that's convincing you, saying this ride is fun. This 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 is the this is the good thing. I, I better go. I better get in my favorite car before somebody else gets in there and cuts me off. I got got to to get in the the blue car. Get out of my car. That's my my blue car. But you know what? It was a little fun. In the moment right before, I was like, well, I I did feel a little bit of adrenaline. I felt alive. You know, like, I I I got a feeling back of control. I let that person have it. I told them where to go and how to get there. Like, that was, that felt good. I made them feel like I feel. Kind of like that car. And so we get off the tilt of whirl of shame, feeling more shame, resentful to those that sold us the ticket, and feeling sick to our stomachs. And yet it did feel good for a moment. It did feel good for a moment. As we enter into some worship here and just proclaim before God just freedom from this, I wonder if maybe. If you've got an area of your life that you just you can see this, you're like, yeah, I could see a hop on that car every once in a while, because I'm sure you do. I just want you to know that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, that he's already paid for it. And there are sometimes some things that we carry around with us that Christ already paid for. He said, actually, I, I thought we made a trade there. Like I, I died for the forgiveness of your sin and freedom from your shame so that you didn't have to walk in that anymore. And I'd love to give you something that you don't deserve so that you can give others what they don't either and what they do deserve. Lord, I wonder if you're in that place. Maybe just take a moment. Just lift your, put your hands up like this. You can lift them up in the air. You can just turn, turn your palms up and just a place of just receiving from the Lord. Because I will remind you that it is nothing of you. It is simply receiving what Christ already paid for You. And maybe you just take this as a moment of just declaration before God. You take that area of your life that you know that you're struggling with and turn that over to God. I wonder if you'd speak this out with me. God, my past does not define me. It only reminds me of how much you love me. And so I choose to receive what I don't deserve so that I can help set others free. I literally feel the freshness of the spirit in this room right now. Lord, I thank you for the yoke of slavery that's being lifted off of people's shoulders right now. Lord, I pray, just like Paul reminded the Galatians that you have you've been set free, so do not go back and pick up the yoke of slavery again. I pray that as you walk out these doors today, as we enter into this last song of worship, that you can lift your hands, lift your head up, and not allow the stain of shame to have its way in you anymore. So Lord, I pray for freedom. Pray we'd get off the Tilt-A-Whirl, rip up our tickets, and decide, I don't want to do this anymore, and I don't have to. (laughs) And it's no longer shame, shame, I know your name. It is shame, shame, I'm not playing your game. I'm off. I'm done. I ain't going on the ride anymore. As much as you would like to, give me free tickets. (laughs) And I'll tell you, people will hand out tickets all day long, too. Here you go. You should ride this. It's really fun. Lord, return to sender. (laughs) Have your way in our life as we worship you. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.